I next met with Dr. Tim Clausey, and to begin, I asked him about a very unusual treatment of GBM that was approved for use in April, the so-called Nova TTF-100A system, in which electrodes are placed on the surface of the patient's scalp to deliver low-intensity changing electrical fields. It's a device that basically these electrodes are placed across the scalp. One has to shave their head in order to have it in place. It needs to be in place for 20 hours a day. There's a battery pack. That's about 10 pounds that they carry around with them. It's a little arduous, but in the end, it doesn't have a lot of other side effects other than the difficulty associated with keeping it on for 20 hours a day. The idea is that it interferes with cell division by sending an electrical current And I guess they have enough data to show that it, even though you place these electrodes across the scalp, it has some impact on the brain. And then the evaluation was on brain tumors. What came out of that is two things. They did a study, it was a randomized study. They compared the Novacure to best available care. And basically what they found is that, and this is again for recurrent glioblastoma, what they found is that there was no change, no difference in the time to tumor progression, and no real clear difference in survival. I think what happened, they had a ODAC meeting. What came out of that is they said, is the device safe? And I think everybody felt that it was safe. The second question was, is it efficacious? And it was, I believe, six thought that it was, 12 thought that it wasn't. And then they came to the final vote, and I believe the final vote was seven in favor, three not in favor, and two abstained. So the bar for a device to get approved is much lower than the bar for some agents that are provided, either the small molecule inhibitors or even other cellular agents that might be provided. Now, has this data been presented at a scientific meeting or published? It was presented at the Society for Neuro-Oncology last year. And during that, there was, you know, a lot of controversy about it. I think that there's two points of view. One is, this is crazy. This can't work. I don't understand why people are using this or considering using it. And the second is, you know, we don't have a lot of other great therapies. So why not try something out of the box and something new? Have you had any patient of yours be treated this way? I have. I've had a couple be treated. The first patient seemed to tolerate it pretty well, had it for a quite short period of time. They were taking it in the recurrent setting, and I think that's what the study showed, is people really can only take it because of tumor progression that occurs for a short period of time. The second patient was in a study that was an upfront study, newly diagnosed patients that were randomized to get this versus traditional therapy. That patient was able to take it and to use it for about four months, and it was too difficult for them. It was very interesting because, you know, a lot of what is provided is in the details regarding this is that it's less toxic than cytotoxic chemotherapies. There is no effect on bone marrow. And that's true. But this particular patient, interestingly, just said her life changed when she stopped using it because she didn't have to keep shaving her head. She didn't have to keep these electrodes in place for 20 hours a day. And she said she had her life back. So it was very interesting and I think probably outlined some of the difficulties presently that are associated with this use. If this turns out to be an effective use, though, I can imagine someone can make it easier to use, have battery packs that are smaller, make it so that possibly they don't have to shave their head all the time. I would imagine that one could come up with better ways of using it. And so right now, the patients during the 20 hours are usually pretty much homebound? 
No, they are able to go around. I just think that it's difficult. You know, they do carry this 10-pound battery pack with them, and it's arduous. I don't have the exact scientific report, but in this, quote, press release here, it says the rate of progression-free survival of six months was 21% with the Nova TTF compared to 15% with chemo, tumor response, 14 and 10 Without even knowing how they did it, it's just kind of an interesting commentary on how we do research nowadays in this tumor and others and whether, I don't know, sometimes I wonder whether or not somehow we're using agents that actually aren't even effective, but somehow the trials are telling us a different story. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, there is... I mean, this thing doesn't sound like it should work, does it? (laughs) I think that's part of the bias. But again, you know, to some degree, we need to be open to these things, but... What I think you're saying and what I feel is there's a background noise with this disease, and we really need to try to see if we could identify the signal versus that background noise, and it's hard. It's not as easy as we'd like it to be. So let's talk a little bit about what's happened recently, including at the ASCO meeting. If you were to run into a medical oncologist at the hospital cafeteria who says, what's new, what happened at ASCO, anything I need to know about, what would you answer? I think the biggest study that reported was the RTOG0525 study. And this is a study that's for glioblastoma patients. It's evaluating them in the newly diagnosed setting. And the hypothesis that it's evaluating is, if you give a more prolonged dose of temozolomide and overall a higher dose, a total dose of temozolomide over a 28-day period where we're kind of in that maintenance cycle of doing monthly chemotherapy treatment with temozolomide, Do we sequester MGMT or saturate MGMT so that the temozolomide can be more effective? Because essentially that's what happens with temozolomide. You can actually saturate the enzyme and then potentially have the therapy be more effective. So the study was done using patients who received radiation and temozolomide both receiving that the same way. And then when they came to the maintenance part of this, they received either five days on, 23 days off, or 21 days on and seven days off. The total dose that's given over that month of temozolomide is double from the standard approach. So we're given two times the amount of temozolomide. This was a very large study. They got tissue on everybody. They did a really wonderful job in running the study, and it ended up showing no difference. The time to progression was a little bit shorter in the standard arm. The survival was a little bit longer in the standard arm. I think the median survival was 16.6 months in the standard arm and 14.9 in the treatment arm. Not really a significant difference, not that different from the ROTC data that led to the approval of temozolomide. So, you know, a lot of practicing oncologists tend to alter the dose of temozolomide frequently with this idea that there could be an improvement. Giving more is better. And that really wasn't the case. And this study showed that it wasn't the case. Agree or disagree, the only major research development in the last five years with GBM that's really had an impact on patient care is the evolution of bevacizumab. I think that's true. It's kind of discouraging. Yeah, it is. In glioblastoma, we've been blessed that we have a better understanding of the molecular biology of the genetic abnormalities that exist probably than many, many other cancers, and especially for the number of people that suffer from glioblastoma, but it is also a deadly disease. And yet we haven't been able to exploit 
those abnormalities like many other cancers have. Can you talk about your perspective on what those abnormalities are? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is the EGFR. And EGFR, it's going to be either amplified or chromosome 7. It's going to be a polysomy. And almost always associated with that is a chromosome 10 loss and a mutation of P10. So that P10 becomes dysfunctional and EGFRV3 is overly activated. That probably accounts for close to 40% of glioblastoma patients. And yet, you know, through the years we've been trying to exploit that by using various approaches of EGFR inhibition. And we really haven't been able to exploit that to any clinically meaningful outcome. What's your concept of kind of where angiogenesis fits in, where bevacizumab fits in? I see that you were part of a phase one study reported at ASCO looking at a flibercep, the VEGF trap. So that kind of leads into the topic of other anti-angiogenics. Yeah, it's a little puzzling, I have to say. The data that comes from bevacizumab, first of all, seems to be pretty consistent in the recurrent setting, that we see response rates that are pretty high, in the probably 20% and higher. But the response rate is in question with anti-VEGF therapy because of the effect that it has on contrast enhancement. The second measure is six-month progression-free survival. And that also seems to be consistently high at around 40%, which in normal studies, and even as you refer to the Novacure study and other chemotherapies, it's around 15 to 20%. So that's a pretty substantial increase. When other anti-VEGF therapies have been used, and they include sidirinib, which is AZD2171. It includes a drug called pazopinib. It includes the VEGF trap. All these other approaches of trying to inhibit VEGF either at the receptor or at the ligand doesn't translate into the prolonged six-month progression-free survival. We see the impact on contrast enhancement. We see that there is a diminishment of contrast enhancement and the permeability of those blood vessels change, but we're not seeing an impact on six-month progression-free survival. And just to give you an example, this drug pazopinib did have a response rate that was pretty reasonable. I think it was 15, 20%, but the six-month progression-free survival was 3%. And that's dramatically lower than even our chemotherapies. So there is something that's different that's going on with bevacizumab. We don't really understand it. We know that it appears to be better than the other anti-VEGF approaches, at least at this point. Anything else that happened at ASCO or has been published in the last six months or presented in the field that you think is important? You know, I think, um, although it isn't necessarily in the last six months, it still comes up that a biomarker, the IDH1 mutation, is playing an important role in understanding at least the prognostic differences in many gliomas. And so if you were to look at the percentage of patients that have this IDH1 mutation in glioblastoma, it's low, it's five, 7%, but they do quite a bit better. It's not uncommon that these are the folks that are three years out, five years out. They have certain aspects. When you look at their MRI scan, they have a lot of non-contrast enhancing tumor. They look like they came from a lower grade tumor. They seem to have a frontal predominance, which is kind of interesting, and they tend to have more oligodendroglial-like features that are present. So if there's a precursor that it comes from, it probably might be a little bit more oligodendroglial. 
but it's a minority of glioblastomas. But then when you move to anaplastic astrocytomas or anaplastic gliomas, you're looking at 50%. And again, you see this dramatic difference in outcome, both with regard to progression-free survival and overall survival. And then in low grades, it's a much higher percentage that have this IDH1 mutation, closer to 75, 80%. And again, quite a difference with regard to the outcome. So there was actually a abstract that I thought was kind of interesting. It was one of the poster discussions, and that was kind of an interesting approach that this group used. They called it the triple negative low-grade glioma. And the idea of the markers being IDH1, if it's mutant, IDH1, if they have one P19Q loss, and if they have P53 expression, if they don't have the expression. So all of those, the IDH1 loss, because IDH1 loss is highly associated with P53 mutations. And then in the astrocytic lineage, and in the oligodendroglial lineage, IDH1 is highly associated with 1P19Q. But they basically said, those that don't have any of those markers, any of those molecular abnormalities, have a very aggressive tumor. And it's a pretty striking difference with regard to the outcome. There was a second study that just looked at using IDH1 with immunohistochemistry, which is something that can be done, and it's an easy way to identify IDH1 mutant tumors. And in that setting, they looked at 43 grade 3 gliomas. These are oligodendrogliomas. And they identified those that were IDH1 mutant versus not. For progression-free survival, 100% of the IDH1 mutants did not have any progression, where 30% of the other group did have progression. And at three years, 86% had no progression in the IDH1, 6% had no progression in the IDH1 wild type. And with survival, it was fairly similar. At three years, 92% are alive for the IDH1, 9% are alive for the wild type. And so if you have 50%, roughly, of these cases being wild type, 50% being mutant, all of the data that we have from prior studies really are made up of these two subgroups. And there's a lot of noise between those two groups when you combine them. And there would be much less noise if you didn't, if you separated them. And we don't presently know how to effectively take care of patients who are IDH1 mutants. We don't know whether we should be giving less therapy or more therapy. And it just brings up an interesting, when we find some of these new prognostic markers, we need to think about how we should be treating our patients today and can we really be using the data from yesterday when we haven't effectively separated them out. So I'm conjuring up breast cancer and the Ocotype DX work and the colon cancer Ocotype that followed that. And it sounds like what you're talking about here could be applied in terms of what they did there, in terms of going back. Can you go back and look at these factors and trials that have already been done to kind of retrospectively, prospectively, again, as was done in breast cancer, figure out are there actual therapeutic implications? Absolutely. And because you have a immunohistochemical test that could identify it, it would be pretty easy to do that. And I think people are actively doing that and going back to those studies and trying to get that data. So going back to what you describe, or we seem to agree is maybe the only really major thing that's impacted clinical practice, I wanted to ask you one of my favorite new things that ASCA has been the trials in progress poster session 
Yeah. And you were on a poster talking about the so-called Evaglio study. Yes. Can you talk about what that is looking at? Yeah. So this is an extension really of the work that we did of a phase two study that looked at bevacizumab, temozolomide, and radiation therapy used together. And then when the maintenance cycle initiates using temozolomide and bevacizumab. Because of the benefit that's seen in the recurrent setting with bevacizumab, it makes sense to move it up front. There are some reasons to think that there might be some radiation sensitization that occurs with bevacizumab. So the study that we did showed that there was an improvement in progression-free survival, less certain about an improvement in survival. But there also, we attempted to compare it to a control population. And that control population of those that progressed, the majority received bevacizumab at progression. So what we really ended up evaluating was BEV up front versus BEV at recurrence. And we didn't see a difference in survival. We saw a pretty substantial six-month difference in progression-free survival. So this study, there are two studies that are going on. There's the Avaglio study, and there's the RTOG 0825. Both of them randomized, are double-blind randomized studies. They either get infusion of a placebo or they get an infusion of bevacizumab. The interesting thing will be that the Avaglio study really looks and is evaluating a number of countries that don't have the availability of bevacizumab for progression. The RTOG study is predominantly done in the United States and Canada, and bevacizumab is being provided at progression, and they're breaking the blind at that point. So a higher percentage of patients will be probably getting bevacizumab at progression. The RTOG0525 will probably replicate our study more closely in that it's comparing BEV up front versus BEV at recurrence. The Avaglio study will probably be more closely evaluating BEV up front versus no BEV. What are your thoughts about, I'm sure this is a consult question or patient care question that must come up a lot, which is the use of BEV up front outside a protocol setting? Yeah, it's... I think we don't know the answer. I don't do it personally. One of the reasons that I don't do it is because we have the availability of BEV at progression. And at least at this point, although our data is not perfect, it tends to point to patients who have received either BEV up front do no better than those that receive BEV at progression. Since there are side effects associated with BEV, I'd rather use it later than earlier if I can do that. There's one other issue that came up in that study, and again, it's not a perfect study, it's not a randomized study, it was taking a control population that was matched as best as it could, but there was a concern about patients who were under 50, and that some patients who were under 50 didn't do as well in the BEV up front arm than they did in the BEV at progression arm. And that gives me a little bit of pause where I would like more information before attempting to use BEV in the upfront setting. The time that I really consider using it up front is when I can't get a patient through radiation therapy because there's too much mass effect, too much edema, steroids aren't providing the benefit. Many times, if that happens, I can give BEV and I can get the patient through radiation therapy. And a percentage of those will actually do well where I don't think they would have done well before. Could you describe a typical patient and situation right now where you do use BEV outside a protocol setting? Yeah, so the first one I described to you, and the second one is the patient who goes on, gets radiation therapy and chemotherapy. After radiation and chemotherapy, 
the contrast enhancing lesion is usually relatively large. There's usually a lot of edema. In this particular case where I would consider bevacizumab, as I'm following them and trying to give maintenance temozolomide, there are problems that are occurring because they can't get off dexamethasone. And because they can't get off dexamethasone, they're getting proximal muscle weakness. There may be some other changes that are occurring. And that's when, even though I don't think the patient has truly progressed, I consider using bevacizumab because I could take that edema away. They might have a reversal of the symptoms that they're having, and I could get them off dexamethasone. All right, let's go through your cases, beginning with your 55-year-old man. Sure. So this is a 55-year-old gentleman who has a kind of bilobed lesion, meaning that it's located in the left occipital lobe and there's a portion in the left parietal lobe that's close to Wernicke's area. Part of this tumor is contrast-enhancing and part of it is not contrast-enhancing. The more mesial lesion by the occipital lobe was removed. The diagnosis was given of glioblastoma and we did MGMT methylation evaluation and the promoter was methylated the patient received radiation therapy and temozolomide. And then the post-operative scan started showing new areas of contrast enhancement, but it was within the area where there was previously non-contrast enhancing tumor. Well, I would just kind of ride through that, begin to treat the patient, figure that that's at that point pseudoprogression. And then after the next cycle of temozolomide, we did another MRI scan. And that MRI scan showed, again, increased contrast enhancement all still within the area of non-contrast enhancing tumor. Went through another cycle, and as we were doing the cycle after cycle, the lesion kept getting bigger and bigger, and it would go beyond a 25% measurement of when we're going to measure that. But he was doing fine, and it was still within the area of non-contrast enhancing tumor, and he had methylated MGMT in his tumor. So we'd continue to treat, and it wasn't until the sixth cycle of temozolomide that the MRI scan started showing the contrast enhancing area to decrease. And that kind of confirmed that this really was pseudoprogression and not real progression. And that what helped me understand that, I think, are two parts. One is the patient's MGMT was methylated, so I felt a little more comfortable that he wasn't likely progressing that early. And that it wasn't a new lesion that showed up. It was pre-existing lesions. They were just now contrast-enhancing, essentially just showing a treatment effect in those pre-existing lesions. I was kind of thinking, you know, back to this Novo TTF uh, electronic head system that, you know, maybe if you had an, a novel thing like that, the thing you want to do is get about 100 people like your patient and treat them as you think they're getting worse. You follow me? If you were to test sure. an agent at that point, it would look like it was causing a response. That definitely happens. The issue of how much pseudoprogression leaks into progression trials becomes a real issue. One of the ways that we get around that, and it's not perfect, but we don't allow patients onto new trials if they have completed or they need to have completed radiation. They need to have 12 weeks from the time of the last radiation before they can be determined progression to go on a trial. And that should allow you to have a couple scans in there. And what usually is seen with pseudoprogression is you'll have a scan that makes it look worse right after radiation therapy. You repeat another scan, and usually you have stabilization at that point, and you continue to have stabilization or some decrease. The case I presented, of course, made it seem as though the lesion was continuing to get bigger, but that's uncommon. That's not as common a problem. 
What would you do with a person who was actually progressing at that point that quickly? You know, it's a really good question because that is going to be a real subgroup, right? And that's a group of the most aggressive tumor. We don't presently allow them to go on to a clinical trial, which is a shame because they should be able to go into a trial because they have a very aggressive tumor and we should be wanting to do something about it. Because of that, most of those patients end up going on bevacizumab because that is probably going to be the most effective therapy that we have. Maybe the only one that has proven efficacy or not? You know, I think there's still a percentage of the chemotherapies that can be used, CCNU, carboplatin. The percentage is lower, though. You don't get as good an effect as you do with bevacizumab. Let's talk about your 62-year-old man. Yeah, so this is a 62-year-old man who presented with a seizure. He had an MRI scan. The MRI scan showed a pretty large, non-contrast-enhancing tumor in his right temporal lobe, and it extended a little bit into the parietal lobe. He had the temporal lobe portion of this resected, and the pathology came back an anaplastic astrocytoma. It was not methylated and was IDH1 wild type. So we have this anaplastic astrocytoma, IDH1 wild type, not methylated. We treated the patient with radiation and temozolomide. The post-radiation scan showed an area in the parietal lobe that had increased contrast enhancement, but really not a large lesion, not a lot of edema, and he had been completely tapered off the corticosteroids at that time. We started him on maintenance temozolomide, and he actually started to about... 10 to 15 days later, started to decline neurologically. And we repeated an MRI scan. And actually, what happened was the patient was declining. He called us. We told him to start dexamethasone. We probably put him on 8 milligrams of dexamethasone at the time. He then came in and got his MRI scan. And there was a dramatic increase in the area of contrast enhancement and edema and mass effect. This was such a change, and the patient really neurologically declined and was not responding to dexamethasone. That I had to think that this really was true progression. It's a quite short period of time from radiation therapy. It probably is a total of eight weeks from the completion of radiation therapy. And even between the last scan, where it looked reasonably good, and the most recent scan that we got, is about 14 days. And we see this dramatic increase, mass effect, edema, everything. And we put the patient on bevacizumab because, again, it was not a resectable. One option would be to try to remove this, but it was a deep lesion. It could not be completely removed. It would not have improved his functional status and might have made him worse. And I think that's where the use of bevacizumab was important in this patient. So what happened? He actually, we are two weeks into the bevacizumab. He's had some minor improvement. I can't say that he's had really a major improvement at this point yet. In a couple weeks, we'll have our MRI scan, and then we'll begin decreasing the dexamethasone. So your last patient, certainly his age catches my attention, 25-year-old man. Yeah. So this is a 25-year-old male who had a, a seizure, and it was a simple focal seizure. He had an MRI scan, showed that there was a non-contrast enhancing lesion in the left frontal lobe. He had it subtotally resected. There were areas that were residual The diagnosis was an anaplastic oligodendroglioma. The patient had some evaluation of his tumor. The 1P19Q was deleted. IDH1 was mutated, and he was MGMT methylated. So 
a lot of the good prognostic markers being present and also this being in the frontal lobe, he's functioning quite well, all of those things. And then you go through this process of having to educate the people about what the present knowledge is of anaplastic oligodendrogliomas without the understanding of the IDH1 mutation. We do have some understanding of the 1P19Q deletions and how patients do, and there have been studies. And to date, what we really know is that if you give chemotherapy first and follow with radiation versus radiation first followed by chemotherapy, there's no difference in outcome. Even it appears if you give chemotherapy first and wait until there's progression and give radiation therapy versus giving radiation therapy first and waiting before giving chemotherapy, that there doesn't appear to be much difference between those two. So many people, I think, tend to treat these exactly like a glioblastoma. Radiation chemotherapy followed by chemotherapy. And we really have no data to support that. And when we have patients who have a quite good outcome, there really are three possible things that we could do here. Very broadly, we can treat with radiation therapy and potentially add chemotherapy in there. We could treat with chemotherapy and monitor. There's the possibility also that we can watch and wait on some of these patients because we don't really know the rate of change. For instance, on this gentleman, his KI-67, which is a proliferative index, was 2 to 3%, which is quite low. So we know that in low-grade tumors, we can watch before we treat and show that there's an increase in tumor before initiating therapy and not have that interfere with their outcome in the end. Nobody has ever really done that with the anaplastic tumors, but this subgroup, one might consider doing that. This particular patient did not want to have radiation therapy. He was concerned about the cognitive effects. He was concerned about hair loss associated with that, and he felt comfortable doing temozolomide alone, and that's what we're doing right now. What evidence do we have that temozolomide alone is going to provide any benefit? That's a very good question. What we do know is that in low-grade gliomas, low-grade oligodendrogliomas that are treated with temozolomide, especially those that are 1P19Q deleted, about 50% of them will have at least greater than 50% decrease in that non-contrast-enhancing tumor. So we have empiric evidence that there's anti-tumor effect. The durability of that, how it impacts survival, we really don't have clear data about that. And I think that recurrent anaplastic oligodendroglioma, the same thing is true. These are usually quite responsive tumors to chemotherapy, the percentage being as high as 50, 75% of the patients, especially those that are 1P19Q deleted. I don't know whether he asked you this. I would imagine he might have. But do you think that chemotherapy is going to provide a benefit? I got to say, honestly, when I think about it, I bet if we really could find out the answer, it would be no. You know, it might be true. I don't know the answer. Again, I think that there's a tumor burden effect. I think that there is an impact on tumor burden. I can't tell you for sure how that impacts survival, though. You know, I meant to ask you before, actually, your last two patients both had seizures. Yes. And I'm curious how you approach the issue of anticonvulsant with them and how you approach the issue of anticonvulsants in people with GBM who don't have seizures. Yeah, it's interesting. So, these patients who have lower grade tumors, the percentage of patients that will have a seizure is much higher. It's probably 70-80% of lower grade tumors because these tumors have probably been around longer. They cause this irritation over time that eventually leads to a seizure. In glioblastoma, it appears that the seizures occur maybe 20, 
30% of patients. So it's dramatically lower. The tumors grow much more fast. They don't have that time probably to develop some of the long-term necessary effects that lead to irritation and seizures. Glioblastoma, the majority of the patients who have a glioblastoma and have seizures and get treated with anti-seizure medicine, probably 95% of them have good control, even no focal seizures that occur. In the lower grade setting and in the intermediate setting, it's different. First of all, most of those patients don't have big generalized tonic-clonic seizures. They usually have focal seizures. Still, the majority will be controlled with anti-seizure medicine, but it's not uncommon to have patients continue to have focal seizures, even though we're on one, two, or even three anticonvulsants. I just think it's harder to control the seizures associated with lower-grade tumors than it is with higher-grade tumors. But everybody ends up getting the same type of anticonvulsant, and you know you basically add more if you you max out. You use monotherapy, and you max out your total dose with single-agent anti-epileptic therapy. And then if you don't get the benefit, you add and begin to get into polypharmacy. What kind of tolerability issues come up specifically related to anticonvulsants? The newer anticonvulsants are much more tolerable. Previously, we had difficulty with enzyme-inducing anticonvulsants that they interfered with many drugs, including the chemotherapies and the anti-neoplastic agents that we were using. But with the new agents, they have good efficacy. They don't have that impact on the liver, leading to enzyme induction and affecting other agents. So we seem to be doing pretty well by using these and having minimal effects. One of the drugs that we've used more frequently is, I'm going to use a trade name, I'm sorry, because I can never pronounce the generic name, but it's Keppra. And one of the issues associated with it is that there can be some irritability, personality change, and even some aggressiveness that occurs. You can imagine somebody being diagnosed with a glioblastoma and having being upset and maybe having things they have to deal with that are difficult and trying to differentiate what's the effect of something like Keppra in that setting or what the effect is of, of the disease in terms of their mood and their irritability is hard to know. And also throwing in dexamethasone, other corticosteroids, that also causes irritability and other problems. But that's probably the biggest issue that we have, which is really still in a minority of patients. What about the patient who has never had a seizure and anticonvulsants? So for a patient who has never had a seizure, the perioperative period, we frequently give anticonvulsants. And we usually will, at the end of radiation therapy, if it's a glioblastoma, or at the end of some initial therapy, if it's a lower grade tumor, we will taper off the anticonvulsant. So Many patients, that's going to mean being on anticonvulsants for six weeks to 10 weeks. And it's usually more about that perioperative period than anything else. But there really isn't any good data to continue to use anticonvulsants in patients who have never had a seizure.